Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We're presented by CLNS Media. Today on the show, Coles Wicker is here. We're going to preview the NBA Finals. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about, I guess, RJ Hampton. Like, he made a decision to go over to Australia and, and like, New Zealand. He'll play for the Breakers in the Australian NBL. Like, that's a topic worth discussing, I think, because it's just a very different development decision. I've already talked about it on, like, four different radio shows. So I'm like, you know... Like, I feel like I've gotten all my takes out there into the ether, but nonetheless, like it's probably worth exploring it with someone else who can like actually talk about this decision on a high level, uh, such as Cole can. And finally, we're going to talk about some of the stay go decisions. We're recording this at uh, two o'clock Eastern time, so we're not going to have full clarity on it all. But at the end of the day, we'll kind of, uh, you know, just kind of give you what we can. So Cole, how you doing? I'm all right. Uh, good weekend. I went boating for the first time in probably like a year and a half on monday for the holiday on lake washington didn't wear sunscreen so i got absolutely blowtorched and was wearing a hat so it's just a really tough look for me right now <laughs> i'm completely red so uh it's been a tough couple nights sleeping but uh it's it's going well i'm happy to talk about the finals obviously it's good to have nba basketball back after the brief hiatus but uh amped to roll all right well the first thing that we do want to talk about here is the nba finals so let's just like start with this i've seen probably more speculation than i can personally remember that the warriors at least in the last like you know three four years during this run that the warriors might actually be able to get knocked off so where do you stand on this do you think the raptors actually have a chance I do think they have a chance. I think defensively, their personnel is extremely versatile. We saw how they impacted the game against Milwaukee, and it's a different animal with Golden State just because they run different actions. They have you know, more dynamic shooting as their main core players, of course. But I do think Toronto has the personnel, and they have Kawhi, who's proven to be you know, one of the best playoff players of all time. And when you have a player and a talent like that, I think they can threaten. Do I think they're going to win? I would still pick Golden State. It's kind of the LeBron situation where I'm not going to pick against them unless I absolutely have to. So I would still favor the Warriors, but I do think that Toronto has a legitimate shot here. So the thing that throws this all for a loop is obviously Kevin Durant. Uh, Kevin Durant's going to yep. miss at least a couple of games in this series. Uh, you know, Most of the people that I talk to around the league, like they really do question if Kevin Durant is going to play at all in this series um most folks around the league from what i understand like think this is a longer term injury than what has been uh portrayed but we'll see like i'm not going to sit here and say i'm a medical expert and I don't, the people i'm talking to like i don't think they're medical experts and i don't think they've seen kevin durant's you know calf or i believe it's it's a calf and not an ankle right like it's it's like in that weird area where it seems like a bit of uncertainty right yeah definitely i I don't have a good read on the Durant situation at all. I've kind of been treating that as an ultimate wild card. It is kind of two different series, though. Again, we looked at... You see the Dubs play without him stylistically a lot different with him on the floor. You get different matchups. Like if Durant plays, we're getting Kawhi Durant. We're getting that matchup. Without him on the floor, it's, it's really interesting as far as who Kawhi guards and just how Golden State carries out their offense because Durant brings a similar similar dynamic than Kawhi does like this pull-up shooting this mid-range ability to get to a shot at any time that's Golden State's ultimate trump card so it's going to be interesting to see them without him against a, a really high level defense that's really peaking at the right time 
Well, it's so funny because, you know, what the Raptors did was they played like this very soft shell zone, like zone-ish. It wasn't a zone, but like it it had like the makings of a zone defense, you know, against uh, the Milwaukee Bucks just because they were comfortable just taking away Giannis and forcing him into inefficient shots and hoping that some of their, you know, tougher uh Guy, some of their guys that like they were comfortable shooting shots would just miss shots, right? Uh, that's not something they're going to be able to do in this series. Like you have to nope. guard heavy on Stephen Curry's pull up shot. You have to really, really make sure you close out tight on Clay Thompson. Like I'm trying to figure out which of the rotation players for Golden State will be better. Um, I can't really figure that out right now. I think it's really, really tough. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely different stylistically playing against the Bucks and Toronto really cheated off of Eric Bledsoe and, and used his yeah. lack of catch and shoot, three-point shooting spacing. And you can't do the same thing with the Warriors because if you sag off Iguodala, like you'll, you'll just have Clay or Steph sprint around a dribble handoff or a pick and roll and they'll get an open three. So that's what makes the Warriors such a son of a bitch to guard. And it's kind of fascinating to me because, again, I do think that Toronto has really good personnel to defend the Warriors. And it's, it's interesting if they deploy, you know, Kawhi on Stephen Curry full time. They're going to switch a lot. So I, I don't expect that to happen, by the way, just because you need Kawhi to, to maintain some energy. You don't want him to chase Steph around full time. But it's really interesting without Durant. I would put Kawhi more on Steph and just kind of disrupt his flow. I think you got to kind of cut off the head of the snake here. So that's just another element to look for, even though, again, I expect Kawhi to probably start on Draymond to switch that pick and roll. Oh, man, that's a great question. I think I agree with you. Um, I, I would imagine that they'll be comfortable switching that pick and roll and just having uh, Kawhi end up on Steph there. It's interesting, though, insofar as do you just constantly go back to that if you're Golden State? Like, what's the adjustment there? Do you start running like, let's assume what? We'll probably have Marcus Gasol on Kevon Looney, right? Like, I, if I was yep. the Warriors, I'd probably start Looney in this series. Um so, and that's like assuming there's like a massive wild card here in DeMarcus Cousins too, right? Like <laughs> yes. the DeMarcus Cousins wild card is arguably bigger than even the Durant wild card because we know what the Warriors look like at their highest, you know, potential outcome with Kevin Durant. And it's fucking spectacular with DeMarcus Cousins. <laughs> we've just seen such a mixed bag in terms of how they've been able to defend this year that like, I think DeMarcus would help them at the very least on like a 20 minute per game basis, just to like bang with Marcus all and give fouls and everything. But like, there is some question there. Like how much will he really help coming off of injury? Well, yeah. And defensively, if you put him against Gasol, the Raptors are just going to go to that three, five pick and roll with Kawhi, kind of like what they did against the bucks with Brooke Lopez and drop coverage. That's probably not going to be worth the trade-off. Like, I think you can give Cousins minutes in this series, but I would rather do it as a reserve and try to align those minutes when Kawhi is off the floor. I think that makes a lot of sense to me. And because, again, I think that Toronto's just going to hammer you with those Kawhi pick and rolls. And if you if you drop, you can't just let him. He's one of the, the rare shooters. You can't just let him walk into even a mid-range jump shot if, if it's not contested. He, his balance is too good. He's too consistent at those shots. So definitely an interesting dynamic. I would still lean that they start Looney just because more versatile defensively. He can get on the offensive glass. I think you just need to space defense a little bit more than DeMarcus yeah. Cousins. But honestly, I have no idea what they're going to do. I would assume that's that's the route that Kerr goes, though. Yeah, I think I would agree with you. Uh, I think that's what I would do, at least. So, And, and like Steve Kerr is super smart. So I, I would think that that's the route. Um do we want to get into like the idea that the Warriors are 31 and one in their last 32 games with Stephen Curry and without Kevin Durant um, and what that says about 
the Warriors because I've just seen that number so much. And I think that it's kind of insane to ascribe as much value to it as people are ascribing to it. Yeah, I don't have a hard line stance on this other than like the, the people saying that the Warriors are underrated. You, you, how do you underrate this team? They have, in my opinion, right. they still have four. They're still starting four Hall of Famers. Like, of course, Iguodala is not in his prime, but he's still a high level defensive player. Makes great decisions with the basketball. Draymond has been otherworldly defense. He's shown again that when the stakes are highest, he's the best defensive player in the league. And you know these guys are still incredibly good, and they still post so many matchups from the staff. His gravity is going to create opportunities. So. I don't know. I don't really read too much into that. It, people are like anti-Durant, like, oh, Steph by himself, he's still the best player in the league. And I actually agree. I think Steph is the best player in the league right now. But, I mean, it's still an elite team. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's all I can really say about it. Yeah, so I think that part of it is they play with, like, just better defensive energy without Kevin Durant, even in the playoffs. I think they play with better defensive energy whenever Kevin Durant is out because I feel like they know they don't have that security blanket of having Kevin Durant. The thing is, though, that in this series particularly, I do think that not having Kevin Durant potentially is a big hindrance to them because of the fact that they can then put Kawhi on Draymond Green and have him switch pick and rolls, or you can have him at the end of games, let's say for the final six minutes of the fourth quarter, just fucking chase Stephen Curry around and just make his life a living hell if they want to do that. Um, Whenever they have Kevin Durant, I don't really think you can do that. Like Pascal Siakam is very good um, and he's a good defender. I don't think I would trust Pascal on Kevin Durant and getting like the most marginal feedback. Like I I would want Kawhi on Kevin Durant at the end of games, even though uh, Stephen Curry, like, you know, Steph might be the best player. We can have this ridiculous conversation or whatever, but like I would rather have Kawhi on Kevin Durant at the end of games than having Kawhi chase around Stephen Curry just because it helps Kawhi maintain energy because Kevin just moves less than what Stephen Curry does on the basketball floor. Like you're mostly guarding isolation stuff. You're mostly guarding like pick and roll stuff. You're not having to run around like off ball screens. Um, So I think that just not having Durant changes the matchup dynamic in a way that I think is advantageous to Toronto, even beyond like, you know, the talent level of what Kevin Durant brings to the table. Yeah, absolutely. I think the matchup dictation here is most important. I mean, you get the death lineup or the Hampton five or whatnot. You get Draymond at the five with Durant, Iguodala, Clay, Steph, and you force Toronto to adjust. That probably takes Gasol out of the game. That might even take Ibaka out of the game. And then you have to go to maybe Siakam at the five and you just dictate different lineups. And we've seen, you know, Golden State small ball lineups usually beat other teams. I mean, sometimes, I mean, I know there's the P.J. Tucker element to this, but for the most part, I would trust their small ball lineup over basically any lineup in the league. And it really presses Kawhi more. This is something where you look around. It's like, what exactly is Kawhi going to? I assume, again, he's going to guard Draymond. He'll switch that pick and roll. But when they don't run pick and roll, Toronto switches a lot off the ball. But he doesn't have a specific assignment that really presses him for the entirety of the game. That's kind of why I think they should mix in him guarding Curry more, just because I don't think there's a specific matchup on this team. Like if Siakam chases around Clay, for example, I think that might be how they play it. Lowry, maybe guarding Iguodala, you can kind of hide Lowry in that capacity. He's a very good help defender. So I think without Durant in the fold, you get more situations where you can be a little bit more liberal as far as helping. You don't want to overhelp, of course, because you don't want to give up to Clay, Steph, you know, dribble handoff three or whatnot. But it, it definitely depresses you a lot less because Durant, for <laughs> for everything that is said about him, he's clearly still like one of the two best dynamic scorers in the league, and you have to account for him in every second on the floor. 
So we've kind of talked a lot about what happens when the Warriors have the ball. What do we think happens when Toronto has the ball? Because it's kind of weird in that this offseason, it feels like they've gone to a lot more like Kawhi Leonard, isolate, create something one-on-one just because Kawhi is a fucking freak show and is the most like incredible basketball player in the world right now. I think like it's between him and Steph and Kevin Durant. And right now I think I would probably take Kawhi as the best player in the league. Um, but like Nick nurse, he also has a bunch of these like quick hitting plays where he'll, you know, run, you know, someone like Pascal Siakam or Kawhi up from the corner and then let them create and get on the move and take a dribble handoff or take a shot off the, uh, you know, off of a screen just from beyond the arc or from the long two range, because they've taken a lot of those this, pre- this off season or pre or postseason. Jesus. Um, <laughs> I mean, how do we think the Warriors end up trying to go about matching up with the Raptors? Because the way that the Raptors offense operates, I think plays the biggest role in the way that you go about it. Do we see more, you know, of these set plays from nurse or do we see more, Hey, we're just going to say, Kawhi, go do your thing because you're our best source of offense right now. Yeah. I think you're going to see a lot of the latter, but that's kind of dependent on situation. We've seen Toronto's offense can really stagnate at times. It really gets Kawhi driven, especially in the Sixers series where there was no ball movement. Guys were indecisive. Um, Marcus Sol, Kyle Lowry, those guys weren't taking those first shot opportunities. I do think we're going to see a lot of Kawhi pick and roll just because I think with Gasol guarding Looney, you're going to get those 3-5 pick and rolls. I think that's a good way to attack. You're probably going to see Stephen Curry on Danny Green, kind of like J.J. Redick on Danny Green. That's kind of the way that most teams guard this. That's the most logical place to hide Steph. Because Lauer is going to run off. He's so good at like relocating off the ball. You don't want him yeah. guarding playmakers if you don't have to. So I think that's the matchup. We're going to get Iguodala on Kawhi. Well, it, it'll Kawhi be uh, the season with-, in, with Steph. It'll be he'll be on he'll be on whichever of Danny Green or Fred VanVleet is on the floor because Fred's a good matchup yeah. for Steph for Steph because he's not like a wild athlete. And then Danny Green, you can just kind of hide him. Yeah, exactly. And I think for starters, I expect Danny Green to start and then VanVleet to come off the bench. We'll see how good Danny Green shoots in this series. I think he's one of the main X factors. Those two guys, Fred VanVleet and yep. Green, have to make open shots. Again, just the X factor comment uh, element of this. But I think the main matchup that's really intriguing for me is what does who does Draymond guard? And I think it's pretty obvious. It has to be Siakam. It doesn't have to be, but I like him in that role because I want Draymond in help. And that's the one guy you can really help off of on the Raptors. Seen this with what Philadelphia did with Embiid. I want him roaming. I would rather have Iguodala play Kawhi straight up. And that's another element of this series is how much does Golden State really help off the shooters to give Kawhi different looks, give him some double teams. This is one of the best help defenses I've ever seen in Golden State. Like they just have so many high IQ defensive players. But and I'm they've curious been to together see... so long that they know exactly where everyone's going to be. Yes, and I'm just curious to see how how much how aggressive they are trying to take away Kawhi's pull up game. How much do they live with that? Just making tough shots over Iguodala. Can Iguodala contain him well enough off the dribble to uh, let let everybody else stay with shooters and, and not give Toronto all these open looks? Well, here, here's a big question too. So if you're Golden State, and you're playing the, you know, let's call it the, it's certainly not the Hamptons 5 lineup whenever you're putting Looney in, but do you maybe toss Looney on Siakam and then have Draymond Green on Marc Gasol so that you have Dre in the primary pick and roll action? Yeah, 
I get the argument for that. I, I would still rather have Draymond in the easiest help responsibility, but maybe you gauge it and see how aggressive Gasol is with his shot. Like sometimes he just doesn't. Right. That's that's kind of my question as far as taking shots. Like you know, Mark is not always the most aggressive guy at chasing his shot. Yep. Yeah. So I would absolutely, I mean, you can mix that in to keep them off balance as well and just kind of see how Gasol approaches these opportunities. If he's going to take shots or he's going to pass them up, uh, maybe you mix in that coverage. But again, I think that just starting from that point, I'm always trying to optimize defensive players and you just have to put Draymond in help because that's when he can, he's the best in the game at that as far as maybe he throws a different look at Kawhi on a drive and he can recover to Siakam or whatnot. So that's how I would approach it initially. But if they do go to that pick and roll, maybe you do throw Draymond in and and just switch that action. So here's the next question. When it's not Mark Gasol on the floor, when it's Serge Ibaka at the five, or even when it's Pascal at the five, when it's Pascal at the five, I would imagine things get a little bit more complicated where you probably have to have Looney on Pascal and then you almost, I mean, like then what, who, who would be on the floor in those lineups for Toronto? It would probably be Kyle Lowry, Kawhi Leonard, Pascal Siakam, one of Danny Green or Fred Van Vliet, possibly both of them. Um, who, who else could we throw in there? I mean, I think if you get that look, Golden State's just going to put Draymond at the five. They're going to take Looney out and put Draymond on Siakam so he can switch every pick and roll and he can help off him off the ball. I think that's how you see the dubs counter anything like that. Abaka is interesting. I, I think that I don't have a problem with Draymond guarding him and helping off Abaka. Abaka has not shot well from three in the playoffs, so I yeah. think they'll feel more liberal to do that. Yeah, it'll be really interesting. Um, the Dre factor is very real in this series. He's very clearly like... I don't want to say the most important guy, but the way that they utilize him is going to, I think, be the biggest X's and O's X factor uh, in this series because there are just a lot of different ways that they can go about it. And there are a lot of different ways that they will go about using him Um, and and how he plays, I think, is going to play just such an outsized factor in the way that the series goes, both on offense and on defense. Yeah, I totally agree. I think just from a matchup standpoint, him, him and help is going to be fascinating. It's going to be fascinating when they downsize and play Draymond at the five. Can they play all Toronto's bigs off the floor? Can they play Gasol off the floor? Can they play Ibaka off the floor? I think we're going to – Nurse doesn't love going to Siakam at the five, but I think we're going to have to see that at some point in the series. So I think the Dre just stresses you in so many different ways. And we see that both offensively and defensively. It, it, I think ultimately you're going you're gonna to see, again, Kawhi Andre offensively at times just to switch that ball screen action. That's going to be huge because you can't trap Steph. You can't give Dre all of these you know, four and three opportunities. So that's what I like about Toronto is they have the personnel, I think, to at least challenge the Warriors defensively. When they're really locked in, they have good cohesion between guys like Kawhi and Danny Green, for example, off the ball. And you really have to execute off the ball against the Warriors. You have to be good and sound with your communication because they're going to execute all their split cuts and you got to stick with these guys. So I think they have a shot mostly because of that. But again, I would still favor the Warriors and, and probably six. So here is the next thing that is an X factor looming over this series. You know, we just talked about the small lineup. If OG and Adobe comes back in this series and it seems like he's like scrimmaging and practicing right now, that does open up smaller lineups for Toronto. Now, OG is obviously not the most like confident offensive player in the world right now, but he gives them the defensive versatility that they need to where they can play, uh, you know, Fred Van Vliet and Kyle Lowry together with this longer lineup of Kawhi, OG and Pascal and maybe make it work offensively. 
yeah, it, it's definitely a different dynamic. You get real size at the four, and you can kind of feel more comfortable playing Siakam at the five and not necessarily like Kawhi with three other smaller perimeter players. So different dynamic. It's really tough, though, to trust OG in this kind of high leverage situation, though. He's never played in a series against like a team like the Warriors where there's so much off-ball communication. You really have to be dialed in consistently. That's a tough right. ask coming off the injury and whatnot. So I agree. It's it's definitely a wild card. I haven't been operating that like that's going to be a huge likelihood. Um, but like him playing over Norman Powell might help Toronto. And I think Powell's going to play at least a small role in this series as well. And, and they're going to have to win on the margins. Some of these role players, they have to make threes. Like Fred Van Fleet, really, for the last series, as much conversation as Kawhi stopping Giannis, like Fred Van Fleet was just insanely good from three. And, and it's like a couple of those shots a game could be the difference in the series. To quote good friend of the program, Mark Titus, it's a make or miss league. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> but if you make shots, it is. you're probably going to win. And if you miss shots, you're probably going to lose. And that usually favors the Warriors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I am taking the Warriors in this series. Uh, I agree with you that it's going to be in six. I don't. I I would take that outcome with or without Kevin Durant. I think if you know, just because it's clear Kevin is not going to play in the first two games. I think they split in Toronto. Um, I think they split in Golden State, and I think Golden State wins the last two games. Um, it's a it's a hard series for me because of the weird like matchup dynamics that Toronto can throw at Golden State. I can't remember a team that had this many long athletic dudes that can be something of a factor against the Hampton Five lineup. Like, or against like whatever you want to call the lineup without Kevin Durant, right? Um, just the smaller lineup yep. with Draymond Green at center. Even like Houston last year, Houston had to get considerable minutes from like a very real center. Toronto won't necessarily have to do that if Nick Nurse is willing to go to Siakam at the five to try and shut off some of this penetration. And if he just trusts Kawhi to knock down, I think Kawhi's shooting like 55% of his like mid range two point jumpers. Like if that happens and continues to happen against golden state, they can realistically just kind of make this work like offensively with the small lineup. Yeah. And for me, the key is Toronto's offense. I think yeah, they'll I be able, you're never going to really, you're not going to stop. You're not going to stop golden state from scoring. But I think Toronto can at least make it difficult for them at times. You have to score yourself. I mean, we see that time and time again playing Golden State. You have to put up points. And Toronto's offense can really stagnate at times. It can really get Kawhi-centric. And I'm very curious, again, to see how the dubs guard him and like how aggressive they are with some of these coverages. But when Toronto's really humming, when they're playing well offensively, the ball's swinging around. Guys are making quick decisions. Gasol's making aggressive decisions as far as shooting or just whipping the ball quickly, skip passes. Kyle Lowry's huge in this series. Him and Van Fleet relocating off the ball, finding areas to exploit on the dubs. That's why I like Toronto so much is like some of these players are just really smart. Like Van Fleet, Lowry, Danny Green, they're very, very smart players. Obviously, Marcus Gasol. Kawhi is underrated there, so it's just they have the personnel, not only the length and athleticism, but they have enough IQ, I think, to at least hang in this series. So we've mentioned that we think it'll probably be Iguodala getting a lion's share of the matchup on Kawhi. I would agree with Cole on that. Do we think that there are points where they throw Dre on him? Do we think there are points where they throw Clay on him? Yes, I think we get all of those. We get all of those matchups, at least for increments. And of course, with how often these teams switch, you're going to see different matchups on him. But I do think Iguodala gets the lion's share. 
maybe followed by Clay and Dre. They're going to experiment with Dre. I would be surprised if he gets a lot of time on Kawhi, just because, again, I think the Warriors are going to look to really optimize his help defense, because that's the stuff that really blows up other teams' offenses. Yeah, like the times where we'll see Dre, like, quote-unquote, on an island with Kawhi, I think is, like, in a switch scenario, right? Like, they'll run, like, a 3-5 pick-and-roll with Marc Gasol or with, Serge Ibaka and it'll be one of the times where Dre is guarding one of those guys and they'll just flat switch the screen and then we'll end up with Dre on Kawhi but I I would doubt they start many possessions like that but it's a matchup that I think the Warriors should be comfortable with whenever it gets there in the flow of the offense yeah and the last point for me as far as these matchups go very interested to see how Toronto tries to attack Steph in space we we see Houston obviously devise like a screen rescreen system Steph is incredibly good at switching off the ball and passing guys off quickly and, and really fighting on hard hedges and stuff like that to negate the switch. But how successful is Toronto at doing that? Because they tried to do this with J.J. Redick um, with Danny Green as the screener to really take advantage of that. And they weren't really able to do that in that series. Like they're they effective when it happens, but they, they couldn't get that look enough. So I'm kind of curious to see how successful Toronto is at running Kawhi like three, two pick and rolls with Danny Green and trying to get Steph in space because Steph has no chance against Kawhi in space. Like Steph tries really hard. Kawhi is just too strong and his balance is too good. He'll be able to get shots off at will and he'll really compromise the defense because if Steph is on him on a switch, uh, you almost have to help. It's one of the players that you just can't give Kawhi these looks. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you on that. Um, It will be interesting to see how many ways Nick Nurse tries to devise like to get Stephen Curry onto Kawhi. Like, do we see some like weird three, two screen and rolls <laughs> with like Fred Van Vliet setting screens and like popping out into space or even like just setting like slip screens somehow and like forcing Steph into making like a very quick decision on what they're going to do. Because I would imagine that the Warriors are going to go into this, like just assuming that they switch most actions uh, in on ball scenarios. So do we see a circumstance where we just get some of this weird stuff where the Warriors or where the Raptors are trying to get Kawhi cross-matched onto Steph, Kawhi cross-matched onto DeMarcus Cousins whenever DeMarcus is there. Uh, It'll just be like a very interesting chess match. I think particularly from Nurse's side, uh, just because he's had a really good playoffs, but you know this is the biggest level, and it's very interesting to see how he tries to go about essentially defeating you know the chess master or like the grandmaster of all of basketball right now in the Golden State Warriors. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the dynamic between Danny Green and Fred Van Fleet is going to be interesting to monitor because Green in this situation as the screener with Kawhi trying to get that switch with Steph, like Green's not the best playmaker. He's not a good ball handler. I don't think anybody cares if he if he posts up Steph on a switch. Steph's going to be able to fight and that, and that's fine. But Van Fleet, if he's the screener, what if he slips the screen and he has a four on three and he can really dribble and pass and he can shoot at a high level? Like that gets more interesting to me because that compromises Golden State's defense a little bit more. But you need Danny Green's defense. That's the thing is like he he's a better defensive player than Fred Van Fleet. I mean, Van Fleet's size is going to play a role at some point. Like he, he can't guard Steph like that effectively. So I think there's different dynamics. Like Green has to make shots. If Green's not making shots, though, I think you might see Van Fleet featured more in Lowry lineups and then really trying to attack Steph with that matchup specifically. Yeah. With Van Vliet, particularly, I agree with you that that's a road, but then you're giving up 
defense for or yeah you're giving up defense to get more offense like Danny Green is going to be the critical matchup I think on Steph a lot of the time I agree and that's kind of the, the dilemma and that's the trade-offs you have to incur when you play the Warriors you're usually gonna have to give something up and it's just curious if they need offense I think you almost have to try to take that because you, you have to be able to score against the Warriors you're not going to completely stop them but I, I do agree I think that you the Green's going to be the primary defensive player on Steph you want him on the floor but if he's not making shots and you can't take advantage of Kawhi you know three two pick and rolls you, you got to start at least for some minutes hunting for ways to attack the Warriors and I think that's just something that's kind of underrated in the series Van Fleet's just his playmaking might matter yeah it really is I totally agree with that I'm trying to think if there is any other aspect of the series that is worth discussing maybe home court uh like the Raptors have home court this is the first time I think that the Warriors haven't had home court uh do we think just given how raucous I would expect Toronto to be like that atmosphere has seemed fucking incredible throughout the entire playoffs. Oh, hundred percent. The fans are great there. I, I think against a lot of teams, it would factor in for me. And it does deserve to be mentioned. Like having home court is nothing to scoff at, but I just think these, the, the warriors are just different. Like they'll come in and they'll just rip your heart out on your home floor. Like, I don't think it matters to them. I, I think a lot of people have even said it might motivate them. You know, they're in a position that's they're, it's it's not it's atypical for them. They're not used to you know going on the road and having to win. And I think for a team that has won this much, maybe they view this as a new challenge. So I, I just think this team's so composed. Like you're not getting you know a first time playoff team in here. This is like one of the most experienced teams in the league as far as winning. So I, I don't think Steph is going to crumble under the pressure on the road or whatnot. Same with Draymond, Iguodala, all of these guys. But uh, maybe like again. I think this is why some people have, you know, Golden State in seven games is because you have this home court dynamic. And I, I think that that might factor in to an extent. But I, I just don't think to the same extent when it comes to the Warriors. Like if it was a different team, I, w- I would give this more credence. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, I don't know. Do we have any do we have anything else we want to talk about within the series? I would just say last point for me, like the Cousins dynamic is really fascinating and how <laughs> Kerr kind of utilizes him off the bench because we do get some lineups that's just clay thompson out there and, and it really pisses warriors fans off that's like the number one thing is like him out there with a bunch of like non-shooters and maybe cousins you can play him against ibaka if ibaka is at the five and you can really go to him in the post and he can give you a little bit of self-creation in those minutes but i would be judicious about how much i unleashed him against lineups especially that feature Kawhi. yeah i would agree with that um just the injury factors here are insane to me yep. like it, it makes the series genuinely almost impossible to predict if only because like hey Kevin Durant coming back in game four or five totally throws everything for a loop in terms of the X's and O's in terms of the way that teams operate on the floor just everything if DeMarcus Cousins can play 15 minutes a night it throws a lot for a loop if OG Ananobi can play 20 minutes a night it throws a lot for a loop just in terms of the way that these coaches go about trying to operate. I am just very, very intrigued by everything that has potential to happen in this series. Uh, I, I say Warriors in six, and I sound like I have confidence saying it. The only reason that is, is just because of the Warriors. Like if they weren't like this team that is going for four titles in five years, I wouldn't like feel that incredible confidence. I feel like just based off of what is on the floor here, but like, these guys are just so battle tested. They've been there so many times. Uh, they know what this is. That, like, I just kind of think they figure out a way to pull it out. 
that's where I'm at. This is not an indictment on the Raptors. I think the Raptors are a very good team. And Kawhi, there's some ramifications in this series. Like, Kawhi wins this series. Like, this is just how the NBA works, how we remember players at the highest levels of play. And he goes down, I mean, he vaults for sure as far as his all-time greatness. Because this is a guy who's already, you know, an elite, elite-level playoff player. And if he beats the Warriors, I think that's has incredible ramifications. If the Warriors beat the Raptors without Durant at all, what does that say about them? You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't think that they need any more accolades. I think they're appreciated for what they are for the most part. But still, that that's an incredible feat to win four and five years. And to do so without Durant at the highest levels is, is just really, really, really impressive. Yeah, the legacy uh, aspect is pretty interesting. Like, Kawhi Leonard, you know, is a guy that has made three all-NBA teams now, right? Like, we're not talking about a guy whose track record is super, super long necessarily. But if he wins this title, like with the Raptors, he goes immediately into becoming a top 50 player of all time, I think. Like maybe even higher than that. And given how many players over the years have made, what is it, you know, six or seven? I think that seven is the like, no doubt, this guy is a Hall of Famer mark for all NBA. Um, the fact that he's only made three all NBA teams and would immediately vault into such lofty discussions, I think says a lot about where, uh, just where he is right now, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's funny because people, how you remember these players is really interesting. So if you ask someone, what is Kawhi known for? It's like stopper defense. Like a lot of people say, you know, three and D. This guy is like an all-time shot maker. <laughs> That's the yeah, thing about him. Like, like no he's doubt. one of the best pull-up pull shooters. Like, legitimately, it's hard to make any case against that. It's not only just efficiency. It's high-leverage situations. You can't take this guy's game away. You can't take a shot away. You can elevate it over the top of anybody. His balance, coordination, strength level is just absurd. So you really have, like, the pinnacle of a two-way player here. Like, it, it's he's historically outstanding. And I'm... Obviously, this series is not going to change how I think about him as a player because I think that's a little bit too much result bias. But if, if he does win this series, it's it's hard to really argue against that to a large extent just because of the feat and, and beating one of the best teams of all time would just be insane. So and then in Steph's case, like, I think you can make the case that Steph is already the second best point guard ever. But he's like very clearly the second best point guard ever if he wins this title. And he is on track to potentially, I think, passing Magic Johnson if he would continue uh, to win more titles. But I don't necessarily know that I can say for certainty that that would happen. Um, he would certainly not be ahead of Magic yet, I don't think. But uh, if he was to win this title, it would put it in discussion for the back part of Stephen Curry's career. Hey, this guy might catch Magic. Yeah, and I try not to chime in too much on the historical stuff just because I wasn't around to watch Magic Johnson in depth. But, I mean, Steph's the best point guard of my generation. He's the best offensive player in my generation, probably. I mean, I, I think I'm, him or LeBron gets a little interesting for me just because there's different dynamics at play. But his greatness historically, he's going to go down as, I mean, I already have him as like a top 15 guy ever. Like, I think he's that good. Yeah. And I agree with you. I think he's going to, I think the way we think about these players sometimes is very rings driven. And unfortunately, that's the case because I think maybe that underplays some very great players historically. But Steph's going to have everything. He's going to have the resume with his, with rings, winning titles. He's going to have the statistical impact. It's going to be really hard to make a case against him as an all-timer by the end of this. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, just kind of running back through history, like I'm sure that you can make a, make a case for Isaiah Thomas as the second best point guard 
of all time. You can certainly make a case for Oscar Robertson as the second best point guard of all time. Um, but at the end of the day for me, yeah, like you said, it's just going to be really hard, I think, to pass up every single bit of the resume that Stephen Curry is going to have ticked. Uh, and like I said, like if they win the title, I think he's like no doubt the second best point guard ever and has a shot to at least reach that next level. I think two other guys, Iguodal, I, I mention these guys every time we talk about them. Iguodal and Draymond Green are just like the two all-time role players. I love these guys. And, then that, and some people would say role players undersells them. I'm just saying like in the function of how this team works, non-score, non-scoring threats. But they do everything else at an elite level, decision-making, everything. So if Iguodala plays great individual defense on Kawhi, how is he remembered? Because, I mean, he won a finals MVP for guarding, in my opinion, the best player ever. You know what I mean? Like this guy is all time elite. If he can, I mean, I don't expect him to shut down Kawhi by any means, but I think his individual defense in this series and how he's remembered is going to be big as well. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, Draymond Green as well. Like it's it's interesting for me insofar as like I don't know how much this changes things for Dre. Um, like to me, Dre is probably going to be a top one hundred player by the time he retires. Um, maybe this would change that a little bit, I guess, getting to like, you know, being the, what, let's call him the second best player on two title teams. And then the third best player on three title teams, like, or on two title teams, like that would, that would matter, I guess, to some extent, like just for his, for his sake, I guess it would. Yeah. I think that's where I'm coming at this from is like, it's not going to matter for me personally from like, I think it's a little bit too results based to say like, oh, Draymond, if he doesn't win this series, is he team is he still like the same caliber of defensive player, right? But how most people remember people and remember players, I winning impact does factor in, winning bias, all of that stuff. So it's something to be cognizant of. Again, it's not gonna change my perception of these guys, but I care more about it for their sake, like how they're remembered in the grand scheme of things. Because I think again, Iguodala, Draymond, these guys are they're so good. And them getting notoriety is dope because literally they're two of my probably favorite five or six players of all time. So it's hard for defensive guys and great passers and great decision makers to get the same respect and reputation as dynamic scores. So when you, when you win, it, it really helps you out there. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Uh, let's, let's move on. Let's talk some uh, NBA draft before we do that. Let's talk about RJ Hampton. So RJ Hampton has decided to go uh, over to New Zealand to play in the Australian NBL this year. Uh, New Zealand is the New Zealand breakers are a part of the NBL. Um, so this is something that I've been kind of hinting at for a while now. Uh, like I tweeted, you know, three days before the decision happened that there are a lot of people around the NBA who are around the uh, basketball world, I guess we can say that thought um, this is the way it was going to go. Uh, at the combine, basically everyone I talked to about it thought that that was the way it was going to go. Um, the two places I had heard consistently were either China or Australia. Uh, it ends up being Australia, which is interesting on a number of levels. I actually think it's a much better situation, despite the fact that RJ is probably going to be making fairly significantly less money that he than he would have made in uh, China by going to Australia. But overall, what was your initial thought whenever you saw this news come across i don't really have strong thoughts on it like some people do like oh this is a mistake or this is a great move like for me it's just it's not like a trend setting move we don't see this 
being adopted by a ton of players. Like it does happen with relative consistency with like Manuel Moutier, Terrence Ferguson and stuff. So it, ha- it has been, you know, it has been known to happen. I just don't really feel like there's one way or another. Like I'm not going to pretend to understand an individual situation. There could be factors that are motivating him to do this that I don't know about. So I, I tend to not analyze it that way. As, as far as like, does it help his stock? Does it hurt? I, I mostly don't, I don't know if it matters. Like if you're yeah, that talented, we've seen like Moutier again. Moutier goes seven or whatnot. I think yeah. So you you get a lot of these guys. Terrence Ferguson goes in the first round. Still, I didn't think he was good in the sample that he played internationally. So he still has the pedigree to where it's not going to influence him as much, in my opinion. But uh, <laughs> I mean, it's always it's always easier, I guess, for me to track guys in college from a logistical standpoint. You know, sometimes you might forget about RJ as far as like watching all of his games. It's harder to track in a different league especially one that you're not overly familiar with. So competition level and really being able to contextualize a prospect's play, but I'm not opposed to it. I don't have a hard line stance here. So here's what I would say. You mentioned that like, you don't see this as like a trend. What I will say is that over the last, let's say it, let's say it's like four years. We have seen more kids just try and like, even if it's not necessarily go overseas and play for a year. It's like actively avoid college basketball. Like Darius Baisley and Mitchell Robinson just decided to sit out. Right. Uh, Thon maker, Anthony Simons, Jalen LeCue. These guys decided to go to a post-grad year or like essentially to go be eligible for the NBA draft by not going to college. Uh, you know, in the case of Thon, Thon found a loophole to essentially go with this. And now Simons and LeCue have decided to go down this route. And I guess that like LeCue hasn't officially announced yet, but all indications are that's the way it's going to go. Um, then we look at guys like Terrence Ferguson, like RJ Hampton, like Emmanuel Moutier. I mean, you can go back to Brandon Jennings. You can go back to all these guys. And I think that uh, it is indicative of a larger trend that fewer kids care about college basketball like at the highest levels of this at least like there are plenty of three-star kids kids that are mid-major low-major division one players they certainly care about college basketball but let's just kind of be real about it how many relevant recruits are there in a year let's say like a hundred where like people know they are coming into the year like diehard fans of college basketball know who they are coming in uh that's probably a drastic overstatement it might only be like 35 for the average fan of college basketball who have like a vague idea of who these kids are, but let's even ballpark it at a hundred. I think it's a pretty big deal that somewhere between like two to 3% of these kids, like at the highest levels of those rankings too, would decide to just ignore college basketball basically. So it, it is interesting to me that this is happening. I guess from a pedigree standpoint with RJ, it might be more trend setting. I think some of the fringe guys like Mitchell Robinson, I, I was higher on him than consensus, but I-, I didn't see that as like a move that would really trigger a dynamic trend. But RJ, given his pedigree coming in, maybe it does a little bit more affect people, how people view the decision, especially if they see his stock you know, maintain where he thinks it should be and where he's ranked coming into this process as well. I, I still don't. Like unless you get like a Zion who's just like screwed, I'm not going to college. I'm I'm just gonna go play internationally. I think if we get someone who's that notable, if we get a like a really headline prospect that does this, I think that might have an impact. But I, I don't see RJ, even though like I think a lot of people do have him like top five next year. I don't really see him having that same dynamic 
uh, reputation and rapport. I think that's when you're going to start really thinking about these kids' moves is if you get someone who really sets the trend, like a really, really high pedigree prospect that does this. Well, like, here's the other thing, too. Um, what, I'm 29, you're 32, right? One. 31. <laughs> so, like, if you look on Instagram right now, RJ Hampton has like 250,000 Instagram followers. Like he yes. is a big deal among like that world of highlight based, like younger internet based dudes. Like this, this is a thing, you know, like he is, he is a thing. He's not like LaMelo Ball or by the way, LaMelo might end up in Australia apparently. Um, like that that's out there. Like I'm not actually basing that off of reporting on my own. Like I, I'm pretty sure I've seen that speculated like upon, like on the internet. If I'm wrong, don't, don't aggregate this. If I'm wrong, please. Like I'm not, <laughs> I'm not reporting this. This is not, this is something that I believe I've seen on the internet, uh, like from actual reporters. And, and like, I guess that like you could call myself that and maybe I shouldn't say that, but like, I've seen it speculated that that could happen. Um, or like if you saw it, but obviously LaMelo has his issues getting eligible with the NCAA. Um, it's not a Zion. It's not like someone like that with RJ, but it's like the next level down in terms of like this dude matters. So that part of it is interesting. But what is interesting to me is, like I said, like I, I don't think like it matters that RJ is or is not like a trendsetter. Like I, I just think the trend is being set that this is a thing that is happening at the end of the day. Like it's kind of not going to matter because the one and done is ending and you know, maybe it does matter and I'll get to that in a second, but like the one and done is ending uh, at some point here, according to Adam silver, it seems like the most likely draft is probably 2022. So let's assume at some point this happens and it ends. It is just going to totally change the dynamic of how kids are developed because I think more and more and God love him. Because I, I shit on Pete Thamble's work regularly and feel a little bit bad about doing it because he's a very nice guy. But, like, Pete wrote an article today for Yahoo that I agreed with. Like, I, I thought that he was right. Kids, I think, less and less often at the highest level don't see college basketball as the destination. They see the NBA as the destination. And on some level, I think that really matters. And I think another place that where you see this is in draft prospects declaring for the draft out of college. There are way more kids that are borderline draft prospects that like realistically don't really have a chance of being selected in the NBA draft that are just going and saying, Hey, I want to be a professional basketball player. I don't care where it is. NBA teams can find me. If I'm good enough to play in the NBA, they'll find me. If I'm not, then I just want to be a professional anyway. Like, I think more and more kids are doing that. Like, I've talked to a couple of kids this year who think of it that way. You know, some of them end up staying in the draft. Some of them end up declare or uh, going back to school. But I do think that that is an important message in all of this, that college basketball for the best kids in the country, you know, either already in the college basketball ecosystem or potentially entering the college basketball ecosystem, do find it to be a bit less relevant. Yeah, I agree with all that. I would just question the degree of the shift as far as in the one and done era. How many kids really don't see college basketball as just a vehicle to get to the NBA? I don't, like how many kids are genuinely is interested in attending college basketball, at least the high pedigree guys, for multiple years? And how long has that been the case? You know, I, I don't feel like that has been the case. I feel like these guys, it's always been kind of about getting to the NBA. It's just taking different vehicles to get there. 
but like people who grew up and you know maybe this is a thing where like we're probably 10 10 years too young for this yeah like like college basketball used to be a thing like you know for the second time i'll bring up mark titus on this podcast but like mark on his pod one shining podcast shout out one shining podcast one of my favorite shows <laughs> uh he'll he'll often like make the old big east joke right Where like oh i remember the days of the old big east where men were men and you know they used to fight in steel cages after the game because they just couldn't take it off the floor anymore uh, because like people hold this older era of college basketball in such reverence i think and that's just not the case anymore like it, it's just realistically not how this goes anymore. And I am intrigued by that aspect of it. Like I I'm glad about it first and foremost, because amateurism is a bullshit sham and it's a sham on the level of kids, like theoretically in huge air quotes, not getting paid. And it's a sham in terms of the way that kids should be allowed to make money for doing what they love and doing what they're exceptionally skilled at. And especially in like the capacity of, you know, the schools and TV networks and everyone around them is making a shit ton of money because they watch these players on the court. Um, so like, I- I'm glad that this is, I'm glad this is happening where college basketball is becoming less relevant. I, like I'll go anywhere to see kids. I have to go see them. Like I care more about the kids and care about development and care about um, that aspect of this. But obviously I'm very different in that regard. Like, most fans generally care about, I think, going to see the, where they graduated from or going to see their hometown team. And that's fine. But what I think college basketball risks now is becoming a very hyper-localized sport where it'll be those people who are the diehards of the teams that care, but there will just be less national relevance. Like college basketball in the at the end of the day is going to be fine Like in most regards, if only because they figured out they have two very large inherent advantages. They have, uh, first and foremost, that hyper-localization of marketplaces, potentially, which will always make college basketball relevant in some capacity. And two, they have the best sporting event in all of college basketball, because they or in all of sports, because they figured out that the tournament, uh, one-and-done, 68-team you know, event is just so spectacular to watch that people will take off work every year to watch it. So like college basketball is not going to end. It's not going to die. It's not going to be like this, you know, sky is falling scenario, but I do think that it's at risk right now of becoming far less relevant than it has been. Yeah, I agree with all that. And I think some of how I'm approaching this is definitely that generational gap, not being around and competent really for the Tim Duncan era where, you know, you're, for your guys and i've never really viewed college basketball as this high integrity thing like when i've covered the draft it's been all about the draft right it's about prospects it's about seeing that progression that's why i don't factor in these and to be honest like you bring up the high integrity thing i think people like our age think of it the opposite way and clown it yes for being not high integrity because like the kids aren't getting paid and it's bullshit. Well, I think that's the gap too. That's kind of the generational gap is it's right. viewed in, maybe in the past as some kind of high honor to play college basketball for multiple years at great programs as well. And like win in those scenarios and view college basketball as like an independent entity where it's about that game rather than about being a vehicle more for professional basketball for the high leverage guys. And that's always what I've seen. Like I vote, that's why I don't 
put as much stock into this maybe as some, you know, college di- college basketball diehards. Is because for me, it's all about the draft. It's all about these prospects getting to that ultimate point in their lives. Like I support. I don't. I don't condemn anybody's decision. Like if you want to go play international, go do it. Like you know, you know, make money. I, I'm all for that. So I'm not going to come down on kids that want to do and not go through college basketball. But I guess again, I, I think the way that college basketball is viewed by consensus now in our kind of generation definitely has some negative connotation. It's, and for me, I double down on that just because it's not about the college basketball product. It's about evaluating talent that fits in the NBA. Yeah. And college basketball, I think, uh, you know, it's also worth just mentioning like one way to fix this is, you know, something that John Gavoni brought up earlier on Twitter today, like letting kids make money off of their name and likenesses. I think would play a huge role in stopping just this massive, you know, deluge of, you know, borderline prospects like Tyler Cook. And uh, let's throw out trying to think Moses Brown and, you know, Lindell Wigginton and guys, Lamar Peters, guys like that uh, from leaving because those guys, they've all played for relatively big universities at the very least with fan bases that would be happy to get their autograph for like a certain fee that would be happy to get, uh, they would be happy to see their faces in like car dealership commercials or whatever it is. Like there is a very real like way to get these kids money. And it's kind of silly to me that college basketball is essentially cutting off its nose to spite its face uh, because they want to keep this sham of amateurism uh, and integrity when nobody my age and like nobody, uh, I think, below 35, which is the market they should be trying to appeal to right now, uh, because eventually those are the people who are going to matter for college basketball in regard to getting television advertisements and everything like those are that's the marketplace that matters and in a lot of ways you're really uh just kind of killing your own market at the end of the day like you're you're hurting yourself by not going down this road yeah and i'm really well said and i'm in support of whatever benefits these guys long term the kids like if if this is all resulting in people declaring who shouldn't really be declaring. I want a system that really maximizes and optimizes their opportunities to succeed. And whatever that is, I would agree to. I'm not going to sit here and theorize and, and come up with a bunch of different fixes for college basketball and the prospects. But uh, that, at the end of the day, that's what I care about is giving these kids great, like, just a, a better opportunity to, to succeed. And I think if this whole system is resulting in, again, like you said, more of an exodus from college basketball, guys declaring who aren't going to get drafted, that's just dangerous to me as far as for a lot of these prospects because the, the NBA, you don't get infinite amount of tries. You might get a crack. You might get an opportunity, but it's not like you're if you're not a you know first-round pick or a lottery pick, the NBA is not going to invest a ton of time in you. For the most part, and if you if they're getting bad advice to leave, or if they have to leave for financial reasons, that's something that at least has to be looked at as being remedied. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, in regard to R.J. Hampton, uh, look, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I think uh, you know the NBL is certainly a better developmental ground for R.J. Hampton uh, than say Kansas would have been because I believe he said he would have gone to Kansas if he was going to college. Um, what I will say is this. The level of play in the NBL is better than the Big 12, for instance. It just is. These are professional like guys where the average age in the league is probably like 27 
or so like that. Like that is a huge difference between the average age being like 20 guys that have spent seven extra years developing their game. The Australian league particularly is someone that has watched probably 15 to 20 games of the NBL this year uh, because of Brian Bowen. Uh, so I've watched like seven or eight Sydney Kings games um, because of guys like Lamar Patterson, um, you know, guys like Melo Trimble, like guys that are over there that eventually want to come back to the NBA and potentially try and, you know, make Australia a jumping ground for that. Um, I've probably watched 15 to 20 NBL games this year. And what the league is, is it's a very physical league, which shouldn't surprise you based off of the, you know, just Australian mindset of sports and culture. Um, And honestly, I think that that is the kind of environment that will foster RJ Hampton more than say the big 12. And the reason I say that is anyone who's seen RJ before RJ is like this hyper skilled, um, you know, finesse, finesse might be like, I don't mean it derogatorily when I say finesse, but like, he's a guy that relies a lot more on skill than on like athleticism and speed and power getting to play against men that are just physically going to overpower him because they will is going to be a really good experience for him because he will have to figure out different like tricks of the trade and he will get challenged and he will have to face adversity over there in a way that I'm not entirely sure uh, he would have had to face at Kansas. So I think that it's a reasonable decision to make this move. Um, I, me personally, I would say that I think it's probably going to help him a little bit more than Kansas would, but I'm not going to sit here and say like, I know that for sure. Um, Yeah. And like, for those wondering about the infrastructure of the league, I've, wrote, I've written about like how Brian Bowen got set up this year in Sydney. Like Brian was living in like a good place in Sydney. You know, uh, I believe that his parents were over there throughout different points of the season. You know, I would imagine that RJ Hampton's parents are going to go over there with him. Um, you know, the clubs, the NBL, the league itself, the NBL actually pays the players salaries it's not for the next stars program it's not coming from like new zealand i would imagine that like he'll be set up super nice in auckland in a very advantageous situation and around people who speak english around cultures that are more uh similar to american culture than say like european leagues if we're going to compare him to like jeremy tyler or brandon jennings it's just a very uh it's a very good spot for him i think like people think oh it's going to be this massive culture shock overseas like brian bowen like i've talked to him about it like he went through a little bit of that early on but it wasn't like overwhelming or earth shattering like it is you know going to china or something like that you can speak the language you can communicate with people you have to learn to drive on the other side of the road like they're small things but it's not like massive uh culture shock it's just figuring out different like a different uh environment than what you've been accustomed to so I think that from that standpoint, it's, you know, RJ Hampton's in a really good spot right here. Yeah. And from an intangible standpoint, I mean, what do executives look for in a prospect, physical, mental toughness, ability to overcome adversity. I'm not going to like hype this up to say it's a really highly adversity situation, but I I think showing proclivity to exist over there and and playing a physical league against grown men. I think that has some benefits. And I, again, I think too often when prospects do this, it's viewed in like a negative connotation. So not only do people not like it, but they think it's going to negatively impact the player. And I can't sit here and say either if that's going to happen for sure or not. But again, we've seen guys like Brandon Jennings, Terrence Ferguson, Manuel Moutier, they've, they've gone overseas and they've still been drafted in the first round. Like it's not like condemning for the prospect. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's move on and talk about the draft here. Have there been any decisions that have like totally 
thrown you for a loop? Um, not off the top of my head, as far as I, I guess, I don't. I don't have a list in front of me. What what ha, what stands out to you? Um, I was shocked that like Armani Brooks decided to stay in the draft. Uh, that, that was a weird one that. for me today. Um, like he was Houston's like fourth best player this year, probably, which was weird. Um, but like he's, I, I've been told like bench G League guy, and like that's where his career is taking him. Um, so the most relevant decision so far, I would say, we talked about Grant Williams last week, right? Yep. So I would say Nick Claxton is probably the most relevant Definitely. decision. We also talked about Nick, but Nick is like officially staying in the draft, which I think is the right call. I have Nick at number 21 on my board. Um, teams are a little bit lower than that, like on the aggregate, I would say. Like it's a question, but he will certainly get like, in my opinion, multiple guaranteed years in the NBA. Uh, he'll play a lot in the G League next year, but he should get multiple guaranteed years in the NBA. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I, I actually support this decision just because I think he has a chance to go late first, early second. I I think teams, smart teams will be like, okay, let's give this guy two or three guaranteed years, maybe get him on a four-year contract and really develop him. I think that a lot of prospects in that range, we've talked about this in the past, I think he actually has developmental upside. So take advantage of your stock. You know, he had a good combine. He tested well. I just think a lot of guys weren't overly familiar with him at, at Georgia this year. Maybe you didn't yeah. consider him like definite to come out so maybe guys go back over his tape more now and, and say okay this guy's really good in space defensively you know he he has a projectable shot even though i think mechanically he needs to you know implement some tweaks there but kind of a modern big if he can get stronger get a little bit more explosive definitely a developmental guy though and i hope he gets the opportunity but i would be surprised if he fell outside like the top 40 i think conservatively he goes early second round so the next guy i would say is like isaiah roby um you know, another guy, I would say that, like, for teams, he's probably in the range of where Nick Claxton is. Uh, for me, I have Roby at 39. So, like, there's, like, a 18-spot difference between those two. Um, Roby, I think, will go in the top 45 for sure. I think he has an outside shot at the first round because teams do uh, appreciate the skill set. 6'8", 7'1", wingspan, pretty young still. Uh, I think he's 21, like... There's a lot there from an athleticism standpoint, from a potential to shoot it standpoint, just some interest in terms of kind of seeing what you can get with him. Yeah. And for him, I look at if he went back to school, what is he going to show? Like whenever you make a decision like that, you have to have a plan. Like if you're a prospect, what are you going to go back and show the next year? What are you going to work on skill wise? Like we've seen him shoot jump shots. We've seen him put the ball on the floor, grab and goes at the combine. Uh, what is his biggest issues as a prospect? I think physicality being yep. tough. Like, are, are you going to really go back one and thing. show? Like, number yes. one thing. Full stop. So for me, are you going to go back and you're going to show that necessarily? Like, if you're not, if you're more of a finesse player, maybe he gets stronger. But I think with him, when you're talking about strength and conditioning, I would almost rather do that in the NBA. I think that's one of the things that the NBA does well is put you on a, a program like that and you can really develop physically. So. I don't think he's going to go back to school and prove that he's all of a sudden like very physically tough unless he just adds a bunch of strength. So I, I support this decision just because, again, I, I see the clear avenue and you don't want to do what Daniel Gafford did, for example, go back and then not have a plan as far as improvement. Like the only reason I would have told him to go back is if he was going to shoot and he's really going to commit time to doing that. If you didn't get the chance to show execs that, I would rather come out early, especially because Roby is just coming off. Like I, I didn't think his combine was great. His second game was pretty good, but he tested well, and he has enough enduring 
physical traits that I think he's going to get, like you said, I think probably top 45. If he comes back to school and doesn't show any progression, does he get drafted? That, that's the question they have to ask themselves. Yeah, NBA teams were weirdly high on his combine, I thought. Like, the ones I've talked to, like, thought he was a standout of the combine. Um, don't know that I would agree with that. Like, I had guys higher than him, for sure. Like, the guy that's the guy that is weird to me that hasn't gotten as much praise from NBA execs that I've talked to is Jalen Noel. I thought he had a really good combine and people are, are like, eh, you know, he was like, okay. Didn't really help himself all that much. I thought that like he played really, really well, showed off better explosiveness, showed off like a little bit yep. more ability to pull up from beyond three, particularly like I, I was actually kind of in. I was impressed, especially considering the prior coming in. Like I liked Noel. I wasn't like huge on him. I'm still not crazy about him as a prospect, but I thought he sh- I thought he definitely helped himself there. I mean, he showed off. He's got underrated passing ability as well. He made some some nice reads, got out in transition, playing next to Pons and stuff. So I definitely thought he was a guy who at least helped his stock a little bit. So that's that's kind of surprising to hear. I, I'm with you on both sentiments as far as didn't think Roby was as impressive. Again, some of the grab and go stuff in the second game I think really helped him out and like some of the fluidity he showed. But we already kind knew he could do all that stuff and i think noel showed better passing acumen and i agree i think him and cody martin we talked about this in the last podcast i thought they both looked more athletic in that setting yeah cody martin was interesting at the combine but yeah we talked about that last time let's move on uh the two guys that uh have not yet made decisions that i'm most interested in jordan wara and uh devon dotson saw both of those guys yesterday uh dotson played reasonably well i thought Wara looked like a guy who was still coming off like of a calf of injury, so didn't play super well at his uh, workout. But like, I I don't know, man. Like, I, I don't know what these two should do. I think Dotson would probably get a guaranteed deal. I don't know that I can guarantee that Wara would. Um, I, honestly, I don't know if I can guarantee either of them would. But um, what, what are your thoughts on those two? I think with Dotson... If he goes back to school, I think he can show more creation ability, more playmaking, and hopefully just improves the jump shot to a level that you're a little bit more confident. I mean, when you're talking about a backup point guard, in this class, there's some options in the second round. So I can see maybe a little bit of scarcity, like Justin Robinson types, if they get drafted. I I think that ball handlers, especially if you're going to be put in a position to where you can actually run an offense, I think there might be some upside in returning for Dotson. Nora, yeah, Jordan Nora, he's... I don't know. Like, he's also different. Like, I don't know. What, what is he really going to add to his game? More skill game? You know, better show a better handle, better individual creation. I think we know he has the power to shoot NBA threes in his mechanics. Um, maybe he shows better defensive acumen and really commits to that end of the floor. So I think there's upside for both to commit. I, I don't look at either one and say I would draft this guy necessarily. I think that they both have limitations that I would probably take other players over them in their range but if they if they feel confident like if Dotson feels confident he's going to get drafted he's going to get multi-years of guaranteed money uh, I'll again I'll support that decision so Devon Dotson and Jordan Wara are on opposite sides of what I'm calling this year the Terrence Davis line um, <laughs> so I have Terrence Davis at number 47 Terrence Davis is someone that like I would unquestionably want to draft this year no question um daquan jeffries is kind of this line as well like i I would unquestionably want to draft daquan jeffries um i have devon dotson ahead of those two like i think devon is super quick a little bit more explosive than what he gets credit for um and like i mean this in a very real 
like positive way, as I've said uh, about other players before. Like Devon Dotson, that dude is tough. That dude is a motherfucker on the floor. Like that's the kind of guy yep. that like I want to have as a backup point guard. Um, Wara, I wonder so much about the athletic translation, just in the way that he translates or uh, like translates that athleticism to the floor. Uh, Cause he does have like bounce. It's just like, he doesn't have super great quickness and you know, he's a little bit skinnier than what I thought after losing some of the weight this year. And like, that's not a negative that he's lost the weight. He just needs to add the quickness along with it. Um, he's on the opposite side of that line for me. Uh, I would definitely rather have both Terrence Davis and Daquan Jeffries over him. And I would rather have those two over Dotson pretty comfortably as well. So that's, I guess, a little bit of a differentiation here. Uh, Woj just announced that Andrew Nemhard is returning to school. So that's another example. I'm big on point guards developing pick and roll acuity in college especially if you're not going to get those opportunities like a lot of these guys aren't going to be given the keys you know what i mean like you're not going to be dennis smith who gets a year and a half to prove yourself because you you have that pedigree i think with dotson i would like to see him returning and kind of just hone his abilities there the same as nemhart i'm not big on nemhart i think he made the right call here and being able to show more pull-up ability and whatnot so I, i i just like some of the feel elements to especially if you're an initiator i like to have those those reps and a lot of guys don't get that opportunity in the NBA. Yeah, I agree with you on Nemhard. I, I am intrigued by Aaron Andrew. Like, I, I don't know that I would go as far as to say, like, I love him necessarily. Yeah. But I think that his feel and his ability to make plays for others is actually, like, really high level. Um, his, his feel is exceptional, I think. And he has real size. He's like a 6'5 point guard. Uh, if he can just get, like, a little bit quicker and a little bit more athletic, I think there is something there. But I agree with you. Like, he should return because he still needs to figure some things out. I think him his issue is more like pull-up jump shooting and, like, the dynamism no of doubt. him on the ball. Like, he can make reads. I, I think he's a smart player. But I think the more he can even develop and pick and roll – along with those skill developments will be big for him. Cause I, I don't think he gets drafted in this class. Like I, I think it's still, he didn't put enough on tape. Like I never watched him as freshman year and said, I'm, I want to draft this guy, but I have some intrigue, even though I, I wasn't a huge fan at hoop summit and whatnot. I just, I need ball handlers to be a little bit more dynamic than that. Yeah. If he would have been a guy that uh, like was willing to accept a two way in the draft and like go like number 52 That's or whatever. Fair. Uh, he's, I think he is a guy that would have been drafted, but you know, accepting a two way is not necessarily the best option for these guys. Did we talk about O'Shea Brissett last week? I don't think we did. So I like O'Shea a little bit more than what I thought after seeing him at both of the combines, he is someone that often just had to create so much of his offense that it was very interesting to see the way his athleticism translated when he was like able to cut off the ball and like receive a pass from a point guard and uh, just operate like in better space. Because I think that where he struggled was leaping when crowded and having to like have all of the coordination of controlling the ball, leaping, going up, finishing around the basket and everything. Uh, it was a little bit more simple for him at the combine because he had guys that like were actually giving him the ball and he didn't have to like drive to create his own offense he looked a lot better in that setting. Like, I think that he's a guy that like genuinely helped himself by going to the combines and just reminding people, Hey, like I'm a little bit better athletically than what I think I've gotten a chance to show. And of course he got to play 
outside the confines of that zone defense and show some rotation ability on the weak side. I thought he had some nice contests. Uh, his athleticism w- was solid. Like I thought, especially in the second game, we saw a little bit more skill game from him as well. Some pass, some drop off passes. He had a couple nice executed plays. And I agree, he's one of the other guys, along with Noel especially, that I just thought looked more athletic in that setting. I, you know, his issues. For me, is like the the finishing ability. I don't know how good his touch is. There's still a lot of question marks, but I, I do think, especially in that second game, he popped for me pretty dynamically, and he really never did in Syracuse's setting. So I think that he definitely helped himself a little bit there. Yeah, I would agree with you. Um, I'm trying to think who else, who else, who else. We still haven't heard from Lequeux. I'm assuming that Lequeux is going to go pro. Um, you know, yeah. you don't pull out of the second day of the combine and then like not go pro. You know what I mean? Yes um let's see jared harper decided to turn pro uh do you have any thoughts on that uh i mean he definitely doesn't have a lot of momentum coming off the combine i thought he was pretty underwhelming there and that's just i I don't know like i didn't watch him enough at auburn to like have like a better idea of like his pick and roll playmaking but just at that size in general it's a tough investment for a team and again i don't think he really capitalized on any kind of momentum because i I thought he was one of the more disappointing players i got that trey waters really outperformed him at the combine in their individual matchup and whatnot so not totally enamored with that choice but uh i don't know do you think he gets drafted i don't um trey waters though is someone that i think might actually get drafted and he is deciding to stay in um i am at 59 on my board so he's in the range to be sure of being drafted um for him honestly i might rather go undrafted and get to pick my spot i think that that like he's very much in the mode of like a fred van vliet offensively where like it would probably help him to be able to do that uh i like him more than what i thought i did earlier this year like after the combine i went back and watched some tape and he really is just exceptional at reading the play and and knowing exactly where to make the right pass trey waters is fucking good like he's a good basketball player like i have no reservations about his skill level his iq it's really just size based like how many players that size are you know like tyler Ulis, for example it's a it's a really tough hill to climb here but i I do think trey waters as far as just how good he is as a pure basketball player really 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 elite like if he was i wouldn't say really elite but he's very good like if he was six three or six four we'd be having a very different conversation right now oh first round pick for sure if he was that big yes um jordan bone decided to stay in uh Sure, he'll be a priority two-way guy at least. I mean, obviously his testing at the combine was historically great. We're talking like 95th percentile for guards in the past. So that kind of momentum, I think there is some, I think he's going to be viewed maybe as some untapped potential just because of how athletic he is. And maybe they say like there's some upside there. So I I completely get him doing this because I, again, I think that the momentum created with what he just did at the combine, even though I never really saw it in the same kind of game setting, his athleticism didn't translate for me that functionally as far as how he tested but you can't really blame him for trying to capitalize on his momentum here yeah i do think that there is like some of that like i actually do think that he uh like it does play athletically not like 95th percentile athlete athletically yeah but he does play athletically like in a very positive way yeah he's definitely athletic i just don't think it's to the level that his testing would (laughs) suggest he's not like a crazy crazy like russell westbrook kind of athlete in my opinion like it just doesn't translate to that level yeah uh simi chatou has decided uh to stay in the draft sure yeah that's that's really tough because i don't think he's very good and if he goes back to school and we see that featured even more he basically has no shot so he's one of the guys where i would actually probably advise to declare just because i think that the guys with that kind of defensive feel level 
and a lot of holes in his game. Unless you felt really good about him improving in certain skill elements, he's not a good shooter. I, I just don't know what the plan is for him. And I think players like that, I, I would just come out and take a shot that maybe you get you get a, a cup of coffee in the NBA. So here would be my case against that. So Simi tore his ACL in what, December 2017? So he's about 18 months out now. Maybe there's just like some like hesitancy there in the way that he moves. And then additionally, uh, maybe just some untapped athleticism that he has wasn't able to access this year at Vanderbilt. So like maybe maybe you could make that case. You could. And maybe a team is doing that. Maybe that's part of the the analysis here is like they're like, okay, maybe there's some untapped potential. I think that applies now as well. Maybe that's a a frame of, of thought. I, again, I just think it's risky. Like if, if he returns to school and he's the same player, I think he's not getting an NBA chance if, if you don't see that athleticism. But of course, that's intel that would be very valuable to have. <laughs> yeah, no, of course. Um, I think that's I think that's all we got. I think that's all I all I have right now. I mean, the decisions we're waiting on. Sent off a list to my editor earlier. Uh, Amir Coffey, Dotson, Quentin Grimes hasn't made his call yet. It seems like he's going to go. Um, I, I don't... I don't have strong opinions there, I guess. Yeah, I don't either. I think that a lot of these guys are, you know, undrafted, fringy guys. The The main mover for me and the main takeaway was definitely Nick Claxton. He was the one guy I think can go in the first round and has that kind of upside. Of course, I want the rest of these guys to, to succeed, but germane to draft discussion, I don't think a lot of these prospects are really that relevant to the actual selection in the draft like they're not going to be top 60 guys so as far as the listeners go i think nick claxton was the big kind of headliner here and him coming out i think actually makes a difference well i will say this uh casey apollo has not announced what he's doing yet oh i didn't know that um the indication from everyone is like that's a formality but he made a point to say uh at the combine when uh, good friend of the program, Jeff Goodman, asked him, like I was standing right next to him. He said, no, I haven't made my final decision. And he s- still hasn't actually announced it yet. So hmm. that's that's there. <laughs> I will say that. Like, KZ is like a first-round pick, I think, if he decides to leave. So uh, I will just note that, that, that is, that's hanging. Yeah, we've talked about him in the past. I'm not quite as high on him as some are, but he's definitely someone who gets drafted. If he comes out, it's definitely relevant to this conversation. Do you like, he's a first round pick for you, right? No, I'm, I'm honestly not a fan really at all, but to the NBA, he probably is. I think that a team definitely invests in in the twenties or I'd say maybe conservatively, he could fall to the thirties, but I would be surprised if he didn't go top 40. I mean, we're going to have to have this argument again real quick. Uh, so Casey (laughs) just turned 20, like what, like maybe a month ago, something like that. Uh, can really handle the ball for a guy that's six eight with like a seven one seven two wingspan. Like he's like a legit plus six wingspan. Um, pretty athletic laterally, not like the most explosive vertical guy, and made significant strides on his jump shot. W- what am I missing on your end here? Uh, I'm not sure if he knows how to play basketball at a high level. I Fair think point. That... I accept that one. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I agree. I think he can handle the ball a little bit. He can pass, especially from a stationary position. I think he reads the floor okay. Um, I think that collapses when he has to make decisions on the move. I don't think his athleticism is that functional as far as you noted the explosiveness. I think the lateral agility, when he needs to change directions quickly, I don't see him as that kind of like lockdown defender. I think he moves pretty well. And he obviously has the length, the tools. Uh, I didn't really see the off-ball defense. And again, I just think you know a lot of his game in the half-court offensively took a lot of runners that you know he wasn't like finishing dynamically at the rim. I just don't really know 
what he does well, but I do kind of trust the off-the-catch shooting. He didn't show much movement or much off the dribble, so there's not a lot of diversity to do his shooting game. I, definitely I like a catch-and-shoot guy. Like, definitely yeah. a spot-up catch-and-shoot guy. I think this is just a typical guy that the NBA values more than I do um, as far as tools and the ability to shoot the ball and, in theory, be a two-way player. So I'm just not as high on his field level, and I don't think his skill or athleticism is, like, incredibly functional. So here, here is what I would add to the KZ equation is he is, like, a super, super hard worker. He is extremely highly intelligent as a person. Like... Very, very, very intelligent. Um, you know, in terms of like guys I've spoken to at length this year, like had like, you know, let's say 20 minute conversations with, um, he and Grant Williams stand out as like very, very smart human beings. Um, he's like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to like sit here and like compare the two necessarily because it's probably a little <laughs> bit unfair to them. Uh, and realistically, like I said, like I've had like, 20 minute conversations with both of them. Um, but like, they're both like very, very smart dudes. Um, I, I would, if you're in on Grant Williams and you see the upside there because of Grant's intelligence and like work ethic, the same is accurate for Casey. I would say, I would say maybe from an off court intelligence standpoint, but from on court, I don't think there's sure. a comparison really. I think, I think Grant's fair. just a much better basketball player and yeah, no, I, I get the allure, and like you've noted in the past and contextualized it well, like Stanford was kind of a shit show this year, so it's you total have to take shit that show. Into, <laughs> you have to take that into account. I, 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 I definitely think there's arguments in favor of him. Just again, not really my cup of tea in the draft, but he has his fans. Yeah, no, and like, look, I've moved Casey down. Like at one point, I had Casey at like 15 or 16 on my board. Um, I have him at 26 right now. Like he's a borderline Word. first round guy for me, but. He is someone that, like, I definitely would take in the first round, like, if I was running all of the stuff. And I, I, and I think that's probably the case for most NBA teams, so mine's kind of an atypical opinion here. Right. Um, Cole, is there anything else you want to you run down? Anything else you want to talk about? I think we covered everything. It's going to be interesting the next couple of weeks. I can't believe how close the draft is. That's kind of my number one takeaway. Is it seems like it's right around the cor- corner all of a sudden, and uh, it's crazy. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's uh, 22 days away now, which is crazy. I'm very glad that it happens this early because I get to take like four days off after the draft. Like if the draft is the 26th, I basically have to jump right into free agency. Um, But because (laughs) it's the 20th, I'm like, you know, yes, maybe I'll go up to Santa Barbara for like three days with Laura and relax for a little while. Um, My phone broke yesterday also which is not great. The like home button on my iPhone broke. I've had the phone for like three and a half years now. So it's, it's probably time, but that's something else I'm going through right now. I'm not happy. Yeah. I I can't relate. Honestly, the only thing I have bad going on right now is like this incredibly big sunburn going on. So it's very uncomfortable. And, uh, weren't you like out on a boat on Memorial day? Oh yeah. For about 10 hours. So no, yeah, that was a brutal, brutal choice to not wear sunscreen. <laughs> yeah, that's that's not great. Um, it's not not a great look. It's funny, yeah. So I also did not like go crazy with uh, Memorial Day like basketball stuff. Um, I made the decision to watch three movies on Memorial Day. Three like 2019, 2018, 2019 releases. So yeah, that was that's where I was at. <laughs> this is my life. I'm envious. Um, <laughs> Cole, tell the people where they can find your work. 
as usual on the stepin.com, I just wrote two pieces. The first was like a 45 minute read on lead guard pull up shooting. I kind of go through Darius Garland, John Morant, Kobe White, uh, Carson Edwards, other guys in this draft, and look at like the functionality of their jump shots, how versatile they are, how much it matters to their projection because we're dealing with a lot of combo guard s players that don't have incredible point guard feel. Also wrote a piece on John Morant versus Florida State, which I thought was the most useful matchup we've had all year for any prospects. So cycled through kind of the different pick and roll looks. Leonard Hamilton gave Morant how he kind of struggled from two point range going three of 15 and kind of walked through how I think his in traffic finishing his touch. Everything is going to translate. And uh, I would say, as always, continue to listen to this podcast. So I've been like trying to figure out John Morant for a little while now as well. Um, I am a fan of John Morant, like no question. Uh, but I, I do wonder about like quite a few different things with his game, particularly that ability to finish in traffic and finish in space. He he's a tough evaluation for me, man. He's the, probably the toughest player I've ever had to evaluate. And I think there's a lot of variants here that a lot of people aren't capturing. You either get guys that are out or they're like, they're super in like this guy's the next great point guard. I think he can be. And that's what makes him so alluring is because you can see the upside, but I do think his ability to shoot and traffic his forward momentum pull up game is just not established yet. How good is his touch in the intermediate area? You know, he loses explosiveness in traffic when he jumps off one foot. So I think there's a lot of different factors and they could go either way. I'm not saying here and I, I don't have a hard line opinion on him, right? I have him in my second tier. I think he deserves to be there, but I do think there are some both legitimate strengths and weaknesses here that make kind of a high variance prospect. Yeah. So like what I've been like kind of saying about Ja is, I think he's like, if you combined De'Aaron Fox's athleticism with Rajon Rondo's like passing ability, basically. Um, I think that there are some like shot level concerns with Ja, obviously. Yes. Uh, just in terms of shooting it on the move and being dynamic as a pull-up guy, uh, much in the same way as I think there are with De'Aaron Fox, and we'll see if De'Aaron gets there, we'll see if Ja gets there. Um, I think like he's an elite-level playmaker for others, much in the same way that Rajon Rondo was and continues to be. Um, like I, I think that that's like the most accurate way I can compare him as a prospect. Like I think he's a starter, for sure. Uh, in the NBA, uh, but those guys like are borderline all stars. They're not necessarily like game changing all stars, you know. Yeah, I follow that line of thought for the most part. I haven't even made a player comparison for him because I don't think anybody really compares. He's so, such a unique player in how he approaches the game, his athleticism. Like I think De'Aaron's faster. I think De'Aaron's a better one foot leaper. But I, I can see some correlation there as far as not even too much stylistically because Morant showed much more as a passer than De'Aaron did at lower levels. That's why you, of course, incorporated the Rondo element. But it's not like Jaws like a non-shooter. I think that he gets right. too he gets killed too much. I mean, I, I think the shot's kind of a problem, not like a red flag. It's more of like a yellow flag. I'm not sure where it goes, right. but I, I do think he has shooting ability. It's not like he's either extreme. He's not a great shooter. He's not like a terrible shooter. It, and that's what makes him so difficult because pull-up shooting drives a lot of the modern game as far as lead guards go. And I, I don't feel comfortable enough projecting that to a high level. But again, you can't just write him off. Like he, he's shown enough to where there is some intrigue. Right. Like you can't, drop six feet off of him in a pick and roll setting. But if you like crowd him or if you drop like two feet off of him, uh, it's not the quickest, most fluid movement to get into a pull up shot. He needs to like really set his feet to shoot it at a high level. And that's the stuff that concerns me. 
yeah, and that's the kind of stuff that doesn't get covered when we start getting <laughs> everybody jumping into the draft discussion at this time of year. A lot of the NBA guys, it's just you, you look at the highlights, you're like, holy shit. Like, I get it. The highlights are incredible, but you really got to parse through all of these subtleties because all of them are important. So, uh, right. again, I, I think that he can be a, a really good player. He can be a really even potentially a great player. And he's the hardest guy I've ever struggled with as far as this goes, just because you can see all of these outcomes and, you know, it's it's, it's high variance. Yeah, no question. Uh Go to The Athletic. I'll have a top 100 board up on Thursday. Um, I'll have a mock draft probably next week. I'm in the process of writing a thing on Grant Williams. So it's that time of year for sure. Where I have just a <laughs> lot of lot of different stuff coming up. Um, I think that's about all I got, though. Uh, we'll do our, I don't know. When do you want to do the big board podcast? Like, I feel like that's probably like a June 7th thing, like something like that. Like maybe like June 10th. Like we don't want to leave it until like two days before the draft. Yeah, let's definitely give it a little bit of breathing room before the draft, just because I think that'll be a popular one. <laughs> so, yeah, um, we'll have that coming for you, though. We'll have some stuff on the finals coming. Uh, good friend of the program, Dieter Kurtenbach, is up in Toronto right now covering it for his event. So there's just a lot of, uh, lot of stuff going on. So until next time, though, we'll talk soon. Bye.